being able to to work in that that Japanese space is is super humbling for me and obviously working for a group like Maryval some of the great chefs from around Australia that work work within the group is you know super inspirational for me you know even though I've been doing it for sort of 20 odd years you know still still uh, still buzz about it so I love it this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep One of the joys of working in hospitality is the chance to learn about new cultures, ingredients, techniques, and cuisines. But how do you take lessons learnt from one cuisine and use them in another without losing its substance? Michael Fox is the head chef of Sushi E in Sydney. Michael, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. It's good to get you on the show. You've uh, been sort of uh, heavily involved in all sorts of cuisines and Japanese now is um, your forte. Um, what's it been like transitioning through the different cuisines that you've learnt over your career? Yeah, I guess um, for me, sort of, uh, sort of growing up, I always wanted to get that um, real sort of, uh, you know, French European background to learn sort of the, the techniques and, and stuff like that, and, and you know, Asian cuisine and in particular Japanese was always um, you know one of one of high interest to me so I guess it was sort of a, a progression of a timeline it was always going to happen it was just uh, just when I guess there's a real boom in um, particularly omakase offerings in Sydney at the moment sushi has been around for quite a while what's it like being part of that that throng and um, that energy of Japanese cuisine in Sydney yeah I guess um, we're, we're very lucky um, you know we started up um, the omakase about four years ago and, and sort of have a have a pretty loyal following now I think uh, we sort of book out about six months in advance so you know yeah it, it's crazy and it, it's obviously super humbling for us you know it was really uh, we started um, doing it just to sort of um, you know create a bit of buzz um, uh, get a new sort of clientele um, or, or um, guest base through the restaurant um, people that are really obsessive of that um, omakase style um, and it's just uh, it's just gone gone from uh, strength to strength really and, and it's a great great challenge for our chefs to be you know changing it up and, and really get um, uh, more of a creative style you know compared to uh, a la carte staples, I guess. And tell us a little bit about the omakase experience. It's certainly one of my favourite ways to eat and um, really leaving it in the hands of the chef. But what, what do you guys do there? Take us through what an evening might be like. Yeah, I guess um, as is um, probably not as conventional as um, as, as uh, some of the others in Sydney. Um, certainly, uh, we, we only have uh, six seats available per night, so it's real hands-on, and, 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 and for, for me and the team, it's, it's really about um, explaining in depth about the beautiful produce that we, we get to use. I know a lot of omakase around the world. It's, it's very, the chef is kind of a, a lot of time a little bit standoffish, so we make sure that, you know, we, we are we are there for them you know if they want to ask any questions you know however however you know they think we're um, we're going to take those questions you know we're, we're, we're open and we're all there for the night so um, yeah it's a very very special occasion uh, for, for our chefs as well 
I want to explore what you're doing there because it's far beyond just omakase as well a little bit later but you've got such an extensive career take us back to when you were young what sort of role did food play in your family growing up yeah um I guess that's where I got the itch you know I was always in the kitchen with my mom um she was a very good cook and 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 certainly you know that that um, that feeling about being around a table and, and sort of, you know, no TV on. It was very much, you know, what's happened in the day. So so I guess, you know, that that love for food came around, the love for the family and, and being able to, you know, put everything aside for, you know, even if it was an hour just to talk about what's going on, you know, how's the day going. So that, you know, food aside, it was, it was very much, you know, uh, family time, you know, 100%. So, you know, mum was a, a big lover of, you know, Woman's Weekly cookbooks, you know, that, that's where she sort of started learning, you know, how to cook Chinese and I sort of picked it up from there. And, um, yeah, so so that led into, you know, me sort of thinking that was going to be my career and, you know, mum was certainly a bit, um, bit nervous in that. She said, you know, maybe look outside of, of cooking and but that's all I could think of. So, you know, I finished finished school and, 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 you know, finished year 12 and then went into an apprenticeship and I never really looked back. So, yeah, it was all in. <laughs> Before we get into um, the career, do, are there any dishes or feasts that you remember that sort of really stand out from when you were a kid that, that um, your mum used to, used to do? Yeah, I think, you know, one of my favourite sort of uh, death row meals is, is a very simple sort of um, a seafood sort of um, puff pastry number it was basically a, a seafood pasty, you know, white sauce and stuff like that. But we thought it was, you know, very opulent because you know there was some prawns in there, some John Dory, some scallops, and it was, it was very like you know, growing up in in sort of the, the late eighties, nineties, you know, that that was that was pretty luxe for us. So there's a lot, there's a lot of dishes that I, I wish I could forget. That's for sure. <laughs> but, but that was a standout for me. You briefly mentioned uh, you started an apprenticeship. Where did that begin and do you have any stories of what that was like for you? Yeah, so I started in a, um, in a, a beachside cafe in Glenelg in Adelaide and then, um, you know, sort of did that for about a year. But but my, my goal was always to work at um, Mount Lofty House in the Adelaide Hills. Um, so after about a year of my apprenticeship, I moved up there and um, that's sort of when I met um, my head chef at the time, and, and he was he was a guy that had had gone overseas and and worked for guys like um, Paul Bacuse and, and and Raymond Blanc and, and and guys like that. So he sort of got it into my mind that you know maybe I should be looking outside of of Adelaide and, and probably outside of um, Eastern Seaboard restaurants to sort of um, really take it as a, a second apprenticeship you know, beyond what, what he could teach me and that um, sort of that's that's the path I sort of followed, I guess. Was it a bit of a, a shock, the UK, compared to what you were used to in Adelaide? Oh, certainly. It was um, it was certainly um, uh, dog-eat-dog over there. It was very much uh, – <laughs> I don't know how much I can go into, but um, – <laughs> I try and keep it pretty positive. <laughs> it, it was it was hard work. I, I really I really sort of um, treated it as my second apprenticeship, and and sort of felt like I need to start again. You know, I obviously knew how to chop an onion and stuff like that, but as far as you know, working you know amongst forty guys that were all gunning for the same sort of positions and 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 
um, you know, it was basically the, the weak, weak wouldn't survive, which um, thankfully enough, you know, we've sort of tried to eradicate out of our industry and tried to make it more of a positive learning environment, but that was certainly pretty brutal. You and you mentioned uh, Ramon Blanc a little earlier, and you spent two years um, working at his two two Michelin star restaurant in Oxford. Um, what, what did you take from that experience? Um, I guess, I guess, um, just that sort of that discipline, and I, I still I still employ it today at, at the restaurant, and that that consistency because without we can be as creative as we like, but if someone's coming for a meal with us uh, one time they expect it to be the same high quality the next time they come so you can't really have a bad day so that that consistency and that that preciseness is, is super important um that's probably the biggest learning i had um yeah it was just you know the, the guys that I, I i got to work with and you know the the chefs that have worked there before guys like you know marco p white and heston sort of you know yeah, it was really sort of a humbling experience to be able to, you know, work two years and work every section there and um, really felt like, you know, that was, you know, what I always look back on as, you know, one of my marks in my career. You headed back to Australia. What 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 led to the move to Melbourne? Um, I guess um, I'd eaten at um, the move back to Melbourne, as in food and mind. I'd sort of eaten there before I'd, I'd gone over to the UK. I, I, was, I was sort of... You know, I hadn't sort of been home um, in the two years I spent over there, so it was time to come home. And and Adelaide for me wasn't probably the place I was going to settle. I, I needed something more buzzy and and more of a sort of a worldly city. So yeah, moved across to Melbourne, and and lucky enough, you know, landed landed a job with Shannon at, at Vudamon. Um, Ryan Cliff was the, the head chef at the time, so. Working with a lot of English guys there, it sort of felt like, you know, a bit of a, you know, extension of, of what we were doing at, at Manoir. So um, that was quite uh, quite welcoming, I guess. Um, and again, you know, working with with some great professionals there and sort of that, that time at Le Manoir, you know, the, the chefs that have come out of there, you know, that, that I was able to work with, uh, again, is, is, is testament to... You know, not only Shannon and Ryan, but but also those young guys, you know, willing to sort of push themselves and, and you know, make a career out of it. Uh, Shannon, obviously, in Australia is one of the most influential chefs and Ryan is doing absolutely extraordinary things in, in Singapore. Do you have any stories of, of what it's like working with them? Uh, I'd say I don't think we all, always saw face-to-face. I think... Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, sort of differences in, in the kitchen because really, you know, Ryan wasn't all that much older than us. So we were sort of, you know, we wanted his position. You know, he wanted to sort of keep us down on our level. And so, you know, uh, all of our sous chefs, that, that was our next 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 move, right, to be to become head chefs and, you know, do, do the same thing uh, he was doing. So, you know, as, as a sous chef in the kitchen, you're always saying, you know, we can do your job, you know, that kind of stuff. So... Um, I think, uh, you know, time away from, from Vudamon has um, definitely strengthened, you know, the relationship of, you know, mine and Ryan's and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, none of these places are easy to work. <laughs> I can tell you, you know, long hours, you know, uh, um, you know, you try and also live a little as well. So you sort of burn the candle at both ends. And, um, but, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. 
How different was it in the kitchen from a produce sense? You're dealing with extraordinary produce in the UK and Vieux de Mons and renowned for its um, championing of extraordinary produce. Um, what, what was it like for you? I, I think um, certainly seeing um, uh, being being in the UK, you know, we're obviously getting great local stuff, you know, great, great, great um, meats and, and stuff like that and, and but also having access to the Pyrenees for their lamb and, and you know Iceland for cod and uh, it was just different like I think so many things they do well over here and maybe in Australia and, and vice versa you know our, our fish is is completely different here in Australia and, and and that's such a great win for us I think as well and you know and, and the meat as well you know um, we were one of the first restaurants using Blackmore's Wagyu and I just remember and that was sort of the first time I was really using Wagyu because it wasn't really a thing in the UK and just blown away. Italian uh, cookery has really become a huge part of um, the backbone of what you have done over your career as well uh, and and you also won uh, the Age Good Food Guide Young Chef of the Year quite a few moons ago now while you were cooking Italian. T- take us back to how different that was to the structure of um, Vue de Monde and Raymond Blanc. I guess, I guess for me to me to move over to Chaconis was um, sort of uh, a maturing, I guess, getting still in a, a fine dining sort of setting as far as you know the front of house and stuff goes, but but certainly more of a relaxed feel and 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 maybe simplifying things. And I, I think you know at that stage, which is sort of stuck with me, is sort of less is more, I guess, you know, taking things away from the plate rather than adding them. I think, um, you know, certainly at Food of Mind, it was at that time was very like molecular-based gastronomy and whether you're into it or not, you know, um, you know, I, I felt as a chef, you know, I matured and I'd sort of grown out of that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, Going back to basics, really good produce, you know, cooking well, more sort of traditional techniques, you know, a lot of slow cooking, getting away from CV bags and stuff like that was was pretty refreshing to me, actually. <laughs> Henry and the Fox uh, was your first head chef role there on Little Collins Street. What was it like finding your own voice on the plate and dealing with a role like that for the first time? Yeah, it was it was challenging. Um I felt like I had enough confidence in my food, but maybe I hadn't sort of um, managed my own team and, and, you know, not just a kitchen team, but also a front of house team. So um, that was really learned for me, um, you know, being able to take on um, a brand new sort of concept and putting my spin on it um, was great, was great for me. And, um, but yeah, Again, a lot of sleepless nights and, you know, being able to sort of carry the weight of the world, being a head chef, you know, especially my first gig and, and you know, sort of winning winning Young Chef of the Year. There was, there was a lot of pressure, probably only put on, on by myself, I guess. How did you cope with that pressure? Um, I guess I've, I've always had a really supportive network, you know, uh, through my family as well and, and, and certainly through my chef friends as well. So there was a lot of, you know, bouncing off ideas and, 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 and getting really people to, to sort of share their 
share their um, knowledge and their experience, I think, really helped a lot. You were involved with uh, a couple of venues in Melbourne, but you spent quite a bit of time in, in Hong Kong as well. Um, take us over there. What sort of adventures did you have? Yeah, so I went I went over there to relaunch uh, Chikonis, who was who was licensed into um, Hong Kong. Um, so I moved moved that venue from one spot to another, and sort of within three three days of, of landing in Hong Kong, we completely moved the restaurant and opened a new one, and, and probably yeah, <laughs> it was intense, and and didn't take any. Um, you know, team from from Melbourne. I, I sort of um, was dealing with with the the existing team. So, and and completely changing the concept a lot more uh, refined. Sort of back to sort of the roots of of Melbourne Chikonis. You know, here uh, in Hong Kong, it was it was probably more of a casual sort of experience. A lot more pizzas and stuff like that. Um, so, um, I think I was there about six months and and. Um, we just couldn't get it going. It was really a tough location and it's sort of uh, the venue that had been sort of three or four failed concepts before it. So, you know, feeling like there was a bit of a curse on the building and, and over there, it's probably a bit more ruthless as far as opening and closing restaurants. They sort of, they don't, um, don't get caught up in sort of the heart of it. Um, it's just a financial thing. And if it's not working, then, you know, we might explore another few avenues as to how we, we, we can get it fired up and kick-started. But, but they don't really – they're pretty ruthless as far as, you know, if it's not working, then then let's move on. So um, then uh, had an opportunity with um, Black Sheep Restaurant. Um, to to take over as um, chef de cuisine of, of uh, Carbone, um, which, which was you know a big big change for me. Again, of course, it's Italian cuisine, but but New York it, Italian is and that red sauce is, is very different to sort of the um, the more uh, I, I guess traditional Italian that I was cooking. Um, so started with them and, and, and got some training uh, with the major food group guys in, in New York and and sort of my my aim was to 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 try and get the unattainable uh, one Michelin star for for New York Carbone because you know I saw I saw it all at New York and I thought you know we we can sort of do that we we have the produce we have the team um, and I thought it was something that was really really achievable but at the end of the day it wasn't to be I, I, I definitely uh, definitely worked my ass off to try and make it happen yeah being involved with an, an Australian inspired Italian restaurant and a New York inspired Italian restaurant how, how different are they uh, completely different yeah um, you know obviously you know pasta recipes are quite simple um, uh, quite similar you know, we're, it was all in-house apart from sort of the spaghettis and, and linguinis. Um, but as far as the the palate, um, yeah, completely different. Um, but I really, I really, really enjoyed working at Carbone. It was such a hype restaurant. Um, you know, it was full every night. We were doing sort of two and a half sittings, three sittings at night. It was, it had, but, and for me as well, it was sort of, it wasn't about the chef for once. It was, it was. You know, we we got such a so in in 
like the world, there's such a hype for chefs, but this was more about the show and more about the service and the moves they were doing at the table and, you know, Caesar salads, at, at, you know, this was sort of one of those restaurants that really sort of um, set the foundation for, for how a lot of restaurants certainly opening up here in Australia looks, you know, that sort of real, real, um, you know, tuxedo service style, uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, you know, dessert carts and, and all that kind of stuff. What was it like living in Hong Kong for you? Do you have any stories of the food adventures that you had while you were living there? Oh, I think, uh, you know, I talk about a lot and I haven't actually been back since I left there sort of five or six years ago. Um, but, you know, just to be able to, you know, I never never had a bad food experience there. You know, whether I was paying $10 or, or whether we were going to some of the three stars, it's just, and that's how life is in Hong Kong. It's such a such a intertwined, you know, from, from poverty into some of the richest and wealthiest people in the world. It's such a great mix and it, it's one of the only cities I find that it, it, it integrates well and works. You know, you might have a, a cardboard collector scraping alongside down Staunton Street, uh, you know, alongside all the Lamborghinis and Ferraris. It's just, but it works. Um, but, yeah, never, never a bad meal in Hong Kong. I, I can't wait to get back. Was, was there a dish or um, some sort of food that you, you missed from those days? I think I think a, a restaurant uh, um, called Yatlock, I think, um, you know, roast, roast goose and, and soy chicken, those kind of places. Like I really miss, miss Yardbird and, you know, Mot 32 and, and those kind of places. So, yeah, pretty, pretty wild food adventure there. Tell us about coming back to Australia and to, to Sydney to um, for the foray into Japanese cuisine. How did it come about? Yeah, it sort of wasn't really my intention. I sort of felt like, you know, my tenure was sort of up in Hong Kong. I'd done a couple of years and I was sort of pretty exhausted. You know, we're working pretty hard to try and get that, that Michelin star. And, you know, I was, I was probably looking more towards um, going to New York or, or going to London and, um, met a, met a girl over there who was um, uh, just travelling. She was from Sydney and and sort of said, you know, uh, why don't you, why don't you come back and give Sydney a shot? And sort of having no plans and probably a little bit, you know, exhausted slash slash lazy was sort of an easy op, I guess. <laughs> and so so we moved back to well, moved to Sydney for the first time and and moved on to the beaches and. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of sort of crossover between sort of black sheep and Maryvale, um, and so sort of was was talking to to some of the guys uh, from Hong Kong into Maryvale, and, and sort of once got got settled in Sydney, so you know, uh, brought that conversation up again, and then um, sort of sat down with Frank and a couple of the big guys there, and got chatting, and and you know. There were a few positions, you know. I've only found out recently that that probably sushi wasn't wasn't where that that put me. But um, you know, we got talking about Japanese cuisine and my love for it, and, and especially being in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, it was only a short flight to Japan, so I travelled there a lot. So that was sort of yeah, like all, all the time. You know, even to do a, a, a weekend there or a couple nights or whatever. So um, you know, we got talking about sushi, and sort of the rest is history. You know, did a did a tasting with you know Dan Hong and, and those those guys, and uh, obviously it went went okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, take us to some of your trips in Japan. What were some of the experiences that sort of lit that fire for you for Japanese cuisine? 
Yeah, I guess, um, you know, going to, to some of those um, sort of one and two Michelin star, you know, sushi bars and, and just really seeing how, you know, a master actually works to see a guy who spends basically, you know, six, six and a half days doing the same thing. Um, and they've chosen that to do that for the rest of their career is just like for, for, for us, you know, in Australia, you know, our, our menus are massive and we're, we're not really sort of focused on just nailing one thing. We do a lot of things very well, but you know, dish after dish, you know, the, the consistency is just like, for me, was just like mind blowing. Um, so, you know, I, I was, I was lucky enough to obviously spend a, a fair bit of that travel time in Tokyo, but also, you know, out to Kyoto, which is obviously a bit more traditional and sort of being the Kaiseki there and then uh, up through the north, up into Hokkaido and, and, and being able to go to, you know, small fishing villages and, and eating fresh uni up there and, you know, uh, uh, soba noodles, uh, hand cut, you know, in the middle of winter. It's just a lot of fond memories and, and I just I can't wait to get back there as well. Tell us a bit about um, learning and understanding the craft and Japanese technique and working with the team. How, how does it work there? Yeah, so um, so we have a lot of um, sort of sushi masters there, I guess, and, and sort of I'm still you know constantly learning from those guys, and I sort of give those guys the tools to to sort of do do what they want to do and and sort of i i manage that as a whole and, and make sure you know the menu and um you know all of the sort of um the costings and the producers coming in the door and and, and constantly trying to find new new foods to play with and, and giving them the tools to really you know perform and um it works really really harmoniously i wouldn't say it's always been easy but um, especially a a white guy who's you know first first gig in in Japanese food you know it takes 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 a while to sort of build up that sort of respect and and stuff like that and completely get it completely understood what have you learned from your time with the um, sushi masters as you've um, sort of grown into the role I guess um, you know how to how to communicate properly with them and 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 certainly um, you know they're they're pretty happy left to their own devices and and you know if I can you know keep sort of giving them the tools then then they're pretty happy most most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> At the heart of amazing omakase is a, is a lot of seafood in Australia, as you mentioned, has extraordinary seafood. Is is there anything at the moment that's really standing out for you that you have on the menu um, that really champions uh, the amazing seafood available? Yeah, I guess um, we like to use um, as much sort of live seafood as we can. So, um, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of um, baby abalones and stuff like that from Port Link, uh, sorry, from uh, Tasmania. And, um, you know, um, we're sort of, you know, we can, because we're only 18 seats a week, six, six seats a night, we can just use one-off fish that we see coming in from, you know, locally or New Zealand or, you know, so, so we're really fortunate in that space that we don't have to have constant supply, whereas, you know, a lot of, you know, normal restaurants, say, you know, a la carte, a la carte menus have, have to have that consistency of produce coming in, but, but we don't have to worry about that, which is great. Well, you're doing amazing things there at, at Sushi E. What are you loving about what you're doing? 
Um, certainly, you know, being able to to work in that that Japanese space is is super humbling for me, and um, I guess it's given my career a, a, another life as well. Um, so, and obviously, working for a group like Maryvale, you know, they're a big group, but it's very sort of family and orientated, and um, you know, working with obviously um, some of the great chefs from around Australia that work work within the group is you know super inspirational for me you know even though I've been doing it for sort of 20 odd years you know it's still still uh still buzz about it so I love it well we're just getting into uh 2023 what are you looking forward to this year do you have any big plans um certainly um a lot of travel there'll be a couple trips out to Japan uh first first half of this year which which is going to be awesome to get back um you know we've got some plans to I don't know how much I can say, but plans to open another venue, so um, that'll sort of be be on the cards as well. Maybe not uh, this year, but hopefully next year. So um, certainly, just keep pushing with with what we're doing, and and you know keep establishing ourselves as you know one of the leading sort of sushi restaurants in Australia. Well, uh, Michael, it's an honour to catch up with you and um, see what you're doing there at Sushi Inn. Look forward to seeing some new adventures soon as well. Uh, Keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Perfect. Great to speak to you. Thanks for your time. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.